Mark chapter 13, verse 1. It's not where you are. You don't need to go over there. (laughs) Stay where you are. Mark chapter 13, verse 1 tells us that Jesus came out of the temple. As he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Now, clearly, this unnamed disciple was impressed, wasn't he? He was impressed by the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. And I think we would be as well if we were able to travel back in time and we were able to see that structure, to see that complex, if we were able to see it in person, I think we would be impressed as well. Though it was called the second temple, uh, this temple is really like the third version of the structure that King Solomon had originally built almost a thousand years before the time of Jesus. That first building had been destroyed by the Babylonians way back in 586 B.C., But there was a second temple built by the returning exiles in the late 500s. That building, though, was very modest. It was a very basic structure. So the version of the temple that Jesus and his disciples knew, the version of the temple that this unnamed disciple was responding to, was so impressed by as he was looking at, that was the new and improved temple. A new and improved temple renovated extensively by none other than King Herod himself. Yeah, the one who had tried to kill Jesus and the one who had, gave the order to slaughter the babies in and around Bethlehem. That guy. He renovated this. How long did it take for these renovations to that very modest structure? Well, John 2.20 actually tells us. Remember when Jesus was talking with the Jewish leaders? They told him, 46 years it has taken for this temple and you're going to destroy it, right? You're going to raise it in three days like you're saying. So this temple, 46 years of renovation and it was an an, an amazing complex. But beyond the impressive compound itself with its courts and walls and colonnades and massive stones and gold and marble, beyond all of that was the function of, of the temple itself. As God told Moses regarding the prototype temple, we'll call it. The prototype mobile temple called the tent of meeting. It was a tent, wasn't it? It was one you could break down a temple and then you could put it right back up after moving it around the desert as they did. As God told Moses regarding that prototype temple called the Tent of Meeting, it's there I will meet with you. Exodus 25, 22, 29, 42, 43, chapter 30, verse 6, chapter 30, verse 36. He said it many, many times. It's there that I will meet with you. The God of creation meeting with his creatures. It's there, God said, that I might dwell among the people of Israel. Exodus 29, 45. God dwelling with us. Now, as the permanent version, 
Solomon's temple was even more impressive, was most impressive because it was where the living God, this holy God, this creator God would dwell among and meet with his chosen people. Do you remember in 1 Kings chapter 8 when the temple is dedicated, Solomon finally completes the very thing his father David desired so deeply to see, realize this temple in Jerusalem, Solomon completes it. What happens? Ribbon cutting? No, none of that. The glory of God descending upon the place. Cloud, right? Like smoke coming out of this thing. The glory of God filled the temple. He gave the people a sign that I will be there. There won't always be the smoke. There won't always be the bright shining light, the glory. It won't always be there visibly, but you can be sure that God was reminding them I will be there. I will meet with you there. But to do that, what was required? To do that, what was required was that the taint, stain, corruption, the barrier of sin, the people's sin, had to be addressed. So to that end, What did God do? God appointed priests. He appointed priests. And He appointed sacrifices that those priests would offer. Priests who would intercede. Priests who would mediate. And sacrifices to make atonement for sin through the shedding of blood. You see, it's the only way that God would meet with them there. That God would dwell among them. Now, scholars call all of these elements, right? The temple, the priesthood, the sacrificial system, they call all of these things the cultus. This was the Israelite cultus. C-U-L-T-U-S. Cultus. So this cultus, if you think about it for a moment, the ancient Israelite cultus, have it in your head. Think about the elements as you know them. Now, do this. Imagine a journey. Imagine a journey to ancient Jerusalem at dusk. As you round the bend approaching the city, imagine seeing the temple itself rising up from Mount Zion, rising up over that ancient city, catching the golden light of a vanishing day. Can you picture it in your head? Can you picture it? Imagine what it would feel like then to wind through the city, drawing ever closer to the temple courtyards, fires lit there by the doors, the gates opening up, entering through the gates. Imagine moving into the courtyard to see the priests moving in solemn routine there in the outer courtyard. And then through its gates again, going into this next area. Imagine being then escorted into the temple itself as you pass by, heading towards the massive doors on the temple itself. You see the animals being slaughtered. The animals for sacrifice. And as you're escorted into the temple itself through those massive doors, you're you're entering into this first chamber known as the Holy Place. Imagine seeing 
the golden furniture there that God instructed the Israelites to build. Imagine seeing the gilded walls, the bread of the presence, the massive lampstand or menorah. Finally, imagine meeting the high priest himself dressed ornately in the clothing that God had called them to make for the high priest. And then, amazingly, being escorted by the priest into the second chamber of the temple past the veil into a room called the holy of holies or the most holy place and what would you find there you would find the ark of the covenant the very object on which atonement for the entire nation was made through the sprinkling of blood The very object, this ark, over which God told Moses, there I will meet with you. What would your frame of mind be throughout? Right? What What would your mindset be, especially as you went even further and drew ever closer to the holiest precincts of the temple? What would be your disposition as you move through its sacred spaces as you met the priests appointed by God Himself, the priests consecrated for this sacred work? What would be your mindset as you moved among sacred objects and atoning blood? Would you feel the weight of all of it? Would you be humbled? Would you be quieted? Would you be solemn? Would you be apprehensive? Would you be overwhelmed? Would you be in awe? Now hold that right there. Hold those thoughts in your head, right? Hold those thoughts in your head. Whatever you came up with, hold them in your head. Turn over, if you haven't already, to 1 Peter chapter 2. Most of you are already there. It's a passage from our Bible reading plan last week, as most of you know. This morning we are going to work together through verses 4 and 5 of 1 Peter chapter 2. So, take a look, listening, let's listen to the stunning imagery that Peter uses here to describe his readers. 1 Peter 2, 4. As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That language there is familiar, isn't it? It's familiar. That's the cultus, right? That's the ancient Israelite cultus. Temple, priesthood, sacrificial system. All of it is right there. All of it is being used to describe the church. 
All of it's being used to describe these readers to whom Peter is writing. Now think about that for a moment. The sacred space, the sacred offices, the sacred duty and rituals of ancient Israel are being transferred here by an apostle of Jesus to a spiritual context. And that spiritual context is you and me. Aren't we co-heirs of salvation with Peter's first readers? Right? That salvation, they are brothers and sisters. Long ago, we are. We are their co-heirs of salvation. And based on a passage like this, along with several other passages in the New Testament that we might look at, I think we can say that the church, capital C, composed of local churches, lowercase c, throughout all history and around the world, the church is a radically important fulfillment of the old covenant's cultus. You may not think about yourself that way. You may not think about this church or any church in that way. But Peter is saying you should. Because it's true. And he want, God wants you to grasp this idea. So how does the church fulfill the symbol-rich particulars, the details of that ancient Israelite cultus, or what we could call the temple, etc., right? The temple, etc., all those things, priests and sacrifices, the rituals there. Let me suggest two answers for you in terms of how does the church fulfill that ancient Israelite cultus. So here are the two answers. To begin with, let's talk about number one. Take a look on the screen. How the church does not fulfill the temple. Before we talk about how it does fulfill the temple, etc., we need to talk about how it does not fulfill the temple, etc. Notice how Peter puts the most important thing first in our main text, verses 4 and 5. What's the, what's the very first thing he says there? Do you see it? He puts the main thing first. You and I are only, verse 5, like living stones. We're like living stones. You and I are only being built up as a spiritual house when we have done or are doing what? Coming to Him. Right? Coming to Him. Coming to Christ. He's the living stone that's mentioned here. We know that because look at, the, look at the details given, the specifics. He's the living stone that has been rejected by men. Peter will go on later in chapter 2 to really spell that out, reminding us of the one who was led like a lamb, was led before, to the slaughter, silent before its shears, entrusting himself to his father. He'll really spell that out, the rejection of Jesus. He's this one who has been rejected by men, but he's a stone, a living stone that in the sight of God is chosen and precious, as Peter tells us in verse 4. The the language Peter is using here is all Old Testament language. Part of the reason we know this is because Peter has given us quotations right here after our main text. Three different quotations. Look at the next several verses, verses 6 through 8. We, th- we find there quotes from, in this order, Isaiah 28, Psalm 118, and then back to Isaiah, specifically Isaiah chapter 8. Now, as you look over those verses, in, in verses 6 through 8, take a look. Don't miss how the first two quotations given there identify the Messiah not as a living stone. That's what Peter has called him. 
but as a what? A cornerstone or the cornerstone. You see that? This Messiah, this Jesus is a cornerstone, is, is the cornerstone. And if Jesus is a cornerstone, what is a cornerstone? It's that first stone set, right? You know, the foundation's laid, it's all cleared out. There's a first stone that's set. And what, 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 what has, that stone has to be what? That stone has to be cut and laid perfectly, doesn't it? Because it will mark, it will mark the space, the, the, the direction of the building. All the walls will be either straight and plumb, right? Or they won't be if that cornerstone is not, is not right and perfect. So Jesus is the cornerstone. And if he's the cornerstone, it implies, it implies a building is going to be built. There's a building that that cornerstone is, 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 is made for, is set for. A structure grounded in and guided by the perfection of Jesus Christ. He's the cornerstone. And that building or structure is, of course, us. The church. We're that building. He's our cornerstone. The spiritual house mentioned in verse 5. So what does this have to do with the church fulfilling or not fulfilling this temple, etc. imagery that's presented here by Peter in our main text? It simply reminds us of this. The most important thing. Jesus Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of the temple, etc. <laughs> We're not talking about ourselves here in the church. Yeah. The first thing that we have to talk about and make sure that we're right on track with is if we say the church is the fulfillment of the Old Testament temple, etc. We have to say, no, no, no. If we are a fulfillment, we are one fulfillment and we are underneath the fulfillment who is Jesus. He is the fulfillment of the Israelite cultists. Peter has already alluded to this very truth in the first chapter of the letter. Look over at chapter 1. Look at verse 2 of chapter 1. Right in his opening greeting, Peter writes about Christ and Christians, reminding us that we have been chosen by God for sprinkling with His, Jesus' blood. They probably would have known, they should have known, that the sprinkling of blood is the very thing that we talked about before when we took that imaginary journey into the temple, into the most holy place. The sprinkling of blood that was put on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, once a year to cover the sins of the nation of Israel. But that sprinkling of blood, we've received it through Jesus. His blood has been sprinkled over us. That's chapter 1, verse 2. Later, look down to verses 18 and 19 of chapter 1. Peter is even more explicit there about the work of Jesus. He calls his readers to lives of holiness, to uh, lives of set-apartness, knowing, he says, that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. Stop for a minute. That's just one reminder of many reminders in this book that Peter is not writing to a predominantly Jewish audience. He's writing to a predominantly Gentile audience. That's what makes the book so astounding in the language that he's using here. But he'll talk about their past and their, the vanity of their past and their futile forefathers, 
right? And their neighbors who are surprised that they're not coming along in the flood of debauchery with them. Why would they be surprised? They wouldn't be surprised about Jews not doing that. They would be surprised about Gentiles not coming along in the ways that they used to live. And saying, why aren't you doing the same things that we used to do together? Well, because now I belong to Christ. Now I'm set apart by the grace of God. So these are Gentiles that he's writing to here. He says, you have been ransomed from the futile futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold. You haven't been bought back by those things, bought out of slavery, but you have been bought with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Jesus, the perfect sacrifice. Spotless sacrifice. You see, it's Jesus who fulfills these things. We can only be described using this imagery of temple and priesthood and sacrifice because when we look at Peter, what Peter has already revealed, when we look at the New Testament, we know we can only be described in these ways because Jesus was God dwelling among us. Jesus was God meeting with us. He was the temple. The fulfillment, ultimate fulfillment of the temple. Because Jesus performed the ultimate priestly work. Because He stands as our great high priest even now. Because Jesus offered Himself on the cross as the perfect, incomparable sacrifice. Do you believe that? That's what the Old Testament cultist was pointing to. Fulfillment in Jesus Christ. We've got to start there, don't we? We've got to start there. Just like Peter does. So when we keep Jesus Christ first, we're then able to understand, take a look, number two, how the church does fulfill the temple, etc. The temple, etc. Now, we could attempt to go through all three aspects of the cultists described here and try to figure out the spiritual significance of each aspect. Temple, priesthood, sacrifices. For example, we could talk about how believers are a temple or a spiritual house temple of the Holy Spirit that God dwells in and among us through His Spirit in a far more profound way than He ever did among the Israelites. We could talk about that, but temple of the Holy Spirit is not Peter's language. That's Paul's language. That's how Paul described it. Peter doesn't do that here. Well, you could say, well, he assumes that his his readers would understand that truth. Yeah, but before we make too many assumptions of God's Word, let's deal with the text as it is. How about that? Let's deal with the text as it is. Uh, we could also go on and say, well, okay, that's temple language. It's not, he's not using it that way here. We could say, well, sacrifices, spiritual sacrifices that we offer up. Romans 12.1, what does it say? It says, we offer our bodies to God as living sacrifices. There's maybe what the spiritual sacrifice is. Hebrews 13 talks about offering up a sacrifice of praise to God. Hebrews 13 also talks about sharing the good things that we have with our brothers and sisters because God is pleased with those kinds of sacrifices. The only problem is Peter doesn't, doesn't say that here. Right? Now, you're thinking, Pastor Bryce, what about the whole Word of God? Yes, good whole word of god if we were to step back and say what does the new testament itself tell us about the fulfillment of these old testament images and realities like the temple 
What does the New Testament reveal? What's the big revelation from all of the different writers? What, do we, what picture is painted? We call that more of a kind of a systematic approach looking at that. But you can only do that once you have gone through each individual passage that applies and try to understand it in light of its context, its particular context. Does that make sense? We've got to start that way first before we try reading other verses into particular verses like 1 Peter. Reality is this. Peter simply does not define or explain any of this imagery, really. Not like really kind of like hammering it out explicitly. Like what I meant by spiritual houses is that God dwells among you. Or what I meant by priesthood is that you do this. What I meant by sacrifice is that you actually offer this up. Notice they were spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through who? Through Jesus Christ. So he's making sure they understand dudes and dudettes, you're not offering sacrifices to cover sin. Jesus has already done that. We don't offer sacrifices like that anymore. These are spiritual sacrifices that you are offering. But he doesn't spend time breaking that down to say this is what that means. What I think he does instead is he gives us a general impression in the verses to come. How do we understand this language? The context helps us see that Peter's intention is to help his readers understand as he continues through this chapter, he wants them to understand the profound reality of their new identity in Jesus and the profound calling on their lives that flows from that new identity. Because you are now this, you should live like this. Because you are now a spiritual house and a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices, you should live this way. So what do we read here? Let me give you a kind of an overview statement. Take a look at the screen. Here's kind of the overview of what Peter's doing. Just as the temple, priesthood, and sacrificial system in Jerusalem revealed the glory of God in a powerfully unique and powerfully set-apart way, so too does the church of Jesus. The temple, the priesthood, the sacrifices revealed the glory of God in a powerfully unique and a powerfully set-apart way. Every Hebrew knew that. Every Israelite knew that. The church does that now. The church has fulfilled that, is fulfilling that now, that function. Just look at verses 9 through 12 of chapter 2 of 1 Peter and listen as God speaks through Peter to those first readers as God speaks to us this morning. He's speaking to you if you're a part of His church. And He's saying, you want to see what temple living? You want to see what priestly living? You want to see what set apart, sanctified, holy living looks like? What it means? Here it is. Verse 9, but you are, and this is language straight out of Exodus chapter 19, applied to Israel, but now it's fulfilled in the church. But you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, definitely true for these guys, they were not a people, but now you are God's people. 
Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, says Peter, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, as aliens and strangers in a foreign land, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles. Now the word Gentile or nations is being used to describe not who they once were, but now their relationship to the outside world. Keep your conduct among them honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Do you see the common threads there? You see those common threads, what he's describing there? Who they are and how they are to live in light of who they actually are? The set-apart kind of people that they are? The sacred people? The holy people that God has made them? The sacred work to which he's called them? Do you see that? How they should live differently? Peter will go on to write this in chapter 4. Take a look. Whoever speaks, brothers and sisters, should do so as one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. The glory of God. And if you are insulted, believer, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Wow, that reminds me of the of the smoke and the glory of filling the temple, filling the, the tent of meeting and filling the temple later built by Solomon. This picture of glory revealed in us, God glorified by His people. That's chapter 4, verses 11 and 14. So the temple, etc., language in chapter 2 here communicates to us the stunningly sacred nature of the church. Stunningly sacred. But that stunningly sacred nature of the church flows from where? It flows from His excellencies. As we heard in chapter 2. It flows from His marvelous light that we proclaim. That God might be glorified among us. You see, Peter wanted his predominantly Gentile audience, just like us, to understand that the divine distinctiveness, the solemn sacredness, the awe-inspiring gravity of the Hebrew cultists, the sacred temple, the consecrated priests, the holy offerings, that all of it was intended by God to find its fulfillment in us. And when it did, because of the stunningly sacred work of Jesus, our great high priest, it would be critical for the church to understand what that sacredness should look like in the real world. In your everyday life. That's the translation Peter's making here. Right? Capture that imagery. Capture that sense. And bring it forward into your everyday life lives as the people of God. Unfortunately, some Christians and so-called Christians have simply 
gone back to an emphasis on ritual and so-called sacred spaces. That's a mistake. But as Peter makes clear here, what is truly sacred, what is truly awe-inspiring and truly holy, truly, truly powerful are the honorable and abstaining lives of believers. What is truly sacred are the proclamations and the good deeds of a royal priesthood. That's truly sacred. What is truly sacred today is a people who shine God's light into this dark world so that God is revealed through them in all of His glory. How can we, how should we live differently in light of what God has revealed to us through Peter this morning? Let me suggest three ideas for you, okay? Three ideas for our practice in light of God's revealed perspective. First of all, take a look. We need to allow God to define what is and is not sacred. It's kind of a no-brainer. We need to allow God to define what is and is not sacred. Sadly, there are Christians today who still believe the Temple Mount in Jerusalem is more sacred somehow than any place where two or three are gathered in the name of Jesus. That's a mistake. That's unbiblical. Sadly, there are Christians today who believe worshiping in a cathedral or with an amazing band and worship leader is somehow more sacred than serving each other and serving unbelievers with the love of Christ. That's a mistake. God is calling you to both recognize and realign yourself with His definition of sacred space. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in their midst. That's sacred space. He wants you to recognize and realign yourself with His definition of sacred time, of sacred routine, of sacred work, of sacred sacrifice. All of those are changed. Why are they changed? Because they're all fulfilled in the fulfillment of Jesus. Do you need more help clarifying these divine definitions of what's sacred? If you do, then guess what? You're blessed. Because really from this moment on in 1 Peter chapter 2, when he lays all this out, guess what he does the rest of the book? He describes what's sacred. He describes sacred work. He describes what it means to be a sacred people. He describes sacred offerings and sacred routines. That's what he's doing through the rest of this rest of this book, this letter. Just keep reading. The rest of the book is an explanation of how to live as a priestly set apart people. It's right there. Second, number two, take a look. Building on that first point, we need to reclaim God's appraisal of the church. We need to reclaim God's appraisal of the church. 
most of us would have a certain posture. Most of us would have a particular mindset if we were entering into what we believed was sacred space, right? Or we might adopt a different attitude if we believed we were meeting someone who was especially holy, someone who was revered, someone who occupied some kind of sacred office, right? We'd have that mindset. We'd have that disposition. We'd have that posture. We'd come with a certain kind of humility, a certain kind of appreciation, a certain kind of carefulness or propriety, a certain kind of solemnity, a certain kind of awe. But if that's true, why in the world wouldn't we enter into fellowship with the church with this very same posture? The church truly is a spiritual house, truly is a a royal priesthood, a holy priesthood. It truly is offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. But do we see it and do we treat it as such? Or are we tempted to see the church as a religious educational opportunity on Sunday mornings? Maybe as a community enrichment group, community activism group. Maybe as a morally commendable time slot in your weekly routine that makes you feel good about yourself or as a spiritual supermarket or as a social group that makes you feel good about yourself until it doesn't. And you have to move on to someplace that will. Whatever we're tempted to believe about the church, we know what God's Word says. The church is a sacred people called to a sacred work we are a sacred people called to a sacred work we must gather and worship and fellowship and invest and serve together in a way that is fitting for that is consistent with this sacred reality quieted humbled careful Solemn in awe. But pastor, I just come on Sunday mornings and it's Kedrick, it's Lorraine, it's Becky, it's, it's just people I know, right? It's just stuff. Now there's stuff over here against the wall and that's not very holy. And I mean, where's this? And uh, We have a tough time seeing with new eyes, don't we? To look and see the spiritual reality that's represented in this room. This is a spiritual house. Spiritual priesthood. You who offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Oh God, give us new eyes to see that. To understand that. We, We too often don't. We too often don't. We must gather, we must worship, we must fellowship, we must invest and serve together in a way that is fitting, that is consistent with this sacred reality. Brothers and sisters, friends, if you, through, if you thought that the temple in Jerusalem was impressive 
after hearing about it, seeing pictures maybe, imagine in your mind, if you thought that temple was impressive, just wait until you really understand the truth about the church of Jesus. You will be blown away. What did Paul say in Ephesians 3? He said, the manifold wisdom of God, like a beautiful diamond with many facets, the manifold wisdom of God is now made known to the rulers and powers and authority in the heavenly places. How? Through the church. Through the church! Finally, third, take a look. We need to be built up in Jesus as we come to Jesus. We need to be built up in Jesus as we come to Jesus. Remember the opening phrase of our main text here, verse 4. As you come to Him, that living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. What does Peter mean? Does he mean that when we're saved, when we're born again, a new brick is added to the spiritual house? Yes, he does mean that. But couldn't he also mean that as we look to Jesus as we worship Jesus, as we listen to Jesus, as we draw near to Jesus in prayer, worship, as we serve Jesus, that we are being built up in Jesus? Yes, he means that too. (laughs) I think he means both of those things. You see, when we come to Jesus, we don't come and say, ah, it's done, I've done what I need to do, I've come to Jesus. No, we enter into a door and begin to walk down a path. It's marked by the very same repentance and faith through which we came to Jesus, right? We're just repeating the same in that relationship now. It begins at a certain point in time. You might call that your conversion, but it continues with this in the same way, the same pattern of repentance and faith, uh, drawing near to Him, trusting in Him, looking to Him. We're doing that, coming to Him. Yes, I think we could say that our sacred identity is both established in Jesus and increasingly realized in Jesus. Established in Jesus and increasingly realized in Jesus, this sacred identity. And that's not simply an individual thing. As more and more of us in this faith family lean hard into Christ, as we want more and more of Him, as we grow in the Word of Christ and are eager to do His will, I truly believe that the sacred reality of the church, like we've talked about this morning, the sacred reality of the church becomes even more intense among us, in us, through us. That is, God is more glorified and our light shines more brightly in a dark and dying world. But it's as we come to Him. It's as we draw close to Him as we are looking to him so let's go to let's go to jesus brothers and sisters amen let's go to jesus let's let's help each other come to jesus and if you've never truly come to jesus then today is the day to reach out to him in faith what's our prayer our prayer is this may god enlighten our hearts that we might understand the truth about the church so that we might be in awe of that God-infused sacred reality of being a called-out and set-apart people. That's what we are. And may we walk in step with such a glorious truth 
truths like these, encouraging one another with these things all along the way. Amen? Amen. Let's ask God for that very thing as we go to Him in prayer. Would you pray with me? Consistent with this sacred reality. Brothers and sisters, friends, if you through if you thought that the temple in Jerusalem was impressive after hearing about it seeing pictures maybe imagine in your mind if you thought that temple was impressive just wait until you really understand the truth about the church of Jesus you will be blown away what did paul say in ephesians 3 he said the manifold wisdom of god like a beautiful diamond with many facets. The manifold wisdom of God is now made known to the rulers and powers and authority in the heavenly places. How? Through the church. Through the church! Finally, third, take a look. We need to be built up in Jesus as we come to Jesus. We need to be built up in Jesus as we come to Jesus. Remember the opening phrase of our main text here, verse 4. As you come to Him, that living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. What does Peter mean? Does he mean that when we're saved, when we're born again, a new brick is added to the spiritual house? Yes, he does mean that. But couldn't he also mean that as we look to Jesus as we worship Jesus, as we listen to Jesus, as we draw near to Jesus in prayer, worship, as we serve Jesus, that we are being built up in Jesus? Yes, he means that too. (laughs) I think he means both of those things. You see, when we come to Jesus, we don't come and say, ah, it's done, I've done what I need to do, I've come to Jesus. No, we enter into a door and begin to walk down a path. It's marked by the very same repentance and faith through which we came to Jesus, right? We're just repeating the same in that relationship now. It begins at a certain point in time. You might call that your conversion, but it continues with this in the same way, the same pattern of repentance and faith, uh, drawing near to Him, trusting in Him, looking to Him. We're doing that, coming to Him. Yes, I think we could say that our sacred identity is both established in Jesus and increasingly realized in Jesus. Established in Jesus and increasingly realized in Jesus, this sacred identity. And that's not simply an individual thing. As more and more of us in this faith family lean hard into Christ, as we want more and more of Him, as we grow in the Word of Christ and are eager to do His will, I truly believe that the sacred reality of the church, like we've talked about this morning, the sacred reality of the church becomes even more intense among us, in us, through us. That is, God is more glorified and our light shines more brightly in a dark and dying world. But it's as we come to Him. It's as we draw close to Him as we are looking to him so let's go to let's go to Jesus brothers and sisters amen let's go to Jesus let's help, let's help each other come to Jesus and if you've never truly come to Jesus 
then today is the day to reach out to Him in faith. What's our prayer? Our prayer is this. May God enlighten our hearts that we might understand the truth about the church so that we might be in awe of that God-infused sacred reality of being a called out and set apart people. That's what we are. And may we walk in step with such a glorious truth, truths like these, encouraging one another with these things all along the way. Amen? Amen. Let's ask God for that very thing as we go to Him in prayer. Would you pray with me?